Where did John Barry go? I think the kids were dismissed um, if he didn't say that. Uh, and if you don't know where to go, you can exit right over here, and we will take care of you. I want to invite you, if you, if you brought your Bible with you um, this morning, to turn to an Old Testament book that we have been looking at, and then we took about a four-week break, and it is the book of First uh, Samuel. And um, we're going to return to it today. And for those of you who might be new to us, basically the first book of Samuel and second book introduces us to the time of kings in the history of Israel. And um, that may sound like a bunch of history to you, um, but the events that took place in this book and are recorded in this book were intended to teach us things about God, things about how to trust him and how he relates to us and so forth. And so I'm praying this morning as we look at 1 Samuel chapter 9 and the first half of chapter 10 that he will say something to you and strengthen your faith. That is 1 Samuel chapter 9 and 10. Um, for those who want to know where this falls in history, this the events here are somewhere between the uh, 10th and 11th century B.C., about a thousand years before Jesus. Um, I want to say one more thing, too, before I pray, and that is that the story here is, is rather long, and so I am going to be summarizing uh, large portions of it. So um, if you want to um, kind of take note of certain things and then go back and read it later, or preferably um, you would read these texts before. Um, you would come on Sunday morning because we cannot read all of the text. But I will come down in certain places to make what I believe is the central two points of this particular story. And uh, the story, just so you know, from a big picture perspective, it is the private anointing of Israel's first king, uh, King Saul, and introduces us to the time of kings of Israel. Now, uh, to prepare us for this, let me just do something a bit different, and I want to ask if you would take a, a moment, if you would just close your eyes um, right now, and I just want to ask you a, a couple questions um, to prepare you. One question is, and I want you to answer it uh, in, your, in your heart, uh, one is, are you ready to hear something from the Lord, even if it's something that's hard to hear? And if not, will you ask the Lord, Lord, please just soften me to hear what you have to say. Now let me ask another question. What, what are the things that you have brought into this place of worship that are causing anxiety, worry, stress? What's keeping you up at night when you try to sleep or you wake up in the middle of the night and you just can't sleep because something that is, is burdening your soul? What are those things? And, and I want you to name them in your mind. Maybe it's um, a troubled marriage. Maybe it's um, work relationships. Maybe it's an unstable company that you work for. Maybe it's your own sin. What is it that is causing you anxiety and worry? What is making you fear? What's keeping you up at night? I want you to name it. Now, I want you to ask the Lord with those things that you have named that he would meet you in such a way that you would see those things that cause you worry and fear and anxiety in light of his greatness. I want you to ask him to meet with you this morning and that you would see the issues that you face in light of all that he is for you. Because I believe that's the word of God this morning to you is, is look at me and understand your issues and problems in relationship to who I am to you. Lord, I pray that on behalf of everyone here, including my own soul, 
there are things that trouble me in life, and there are things that trouble my family in life, things that we are afraid of, things that we find ourselves anxious about, children, marriage, finances, health, cancer, the future, our country. And Lord, this morning we need to see you. We need to know that you are high and lifted up. We want you, we need you to feed our faith. Lord, you are our rock and our refuge, our stronghold in the time of storm. And we need to believe that. We don't just need to say it or sing it. We need to believe that this morning. And so I ask in the name of Jesus, our our high priest and our king, our rock and our redeemer, I ask that you would speak and increase our faith in who you are. Through this text and through this story, in the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Well, I want to enter this um, story through the New Testament. In particular, I want to enter it through a phrase that I think all of you know if you've been in the church, um, found in uh, Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, and that is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, and you know it so well you don't even need to turn there, where he says that we walk by faith and not by, what's the next word? Sight. So you know it. We walk by faith and not by sight, and and that little statement is a profound um, declaration of what's distinctive about the way a Christian is supposed to live. That is, we are to walk, that is a way of saying this is how we're to conduct the entirety of our lives, both in the big picture things and the small minutia of life. Um, the conclusions we come to, the decisions we make with regards to children, marriage, money, and the future. We are to walk the entirety of your life by one thing and not another thing. We are to walk by this thing called faith and not by or based on the conclusions of what we see with our physical eyes going on around us. We are to walk by our faith, our trust in something we can't see, according to Hebrews. Faith is confidence or the conviction of things hoped for, things unseen, um, that we are to, to be living our lives and coming to conclusions and basing our reality on something that we can't see, not on what we, we can't see. And the fact of the matter is, is that the world, and unfortunately many of us gravitate towards uh, basing our conclusions and decisions on life, not on the basis of the unseen reality of who God is and what he's done for us and who he promises to be for us and, and what's been revealed in Scripture and, of course, revealed in Jesus about God. We tend to walk and conduct ourselves based upon the things we see happening around us. As a result, um, many Christians find themselves anxious, worried, fearful, um, alarm, uh, alarmist and panicking and, and paranoid because they're, 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 they're living life largely on what they see happening around them. And if you don't think so, perhaps the best test is to ask yourself or kind of do a self-evaluation, how is it that I am reacting, reacting in the middle of my negative circumstances? Because if you find yourself growing anxious and worried, it probably means you are living life on the basis of what you see, not on what you believe, not in who you trust in. As a rather vivid example of that very truth, uh, what comes to mind is, is a story you also well know um, that comes from the book of Exodus, chapter 14, in which Moses, a prophet of God in roughly the 14th century B.C., he leads the, the, the people of Israel out of slavery of Egypt, and he leads them into a dead-end cul-de-sac where there is this large body of water called the Red Sea in front of them. 
And the text gives the sense that there's a mountain range on the right and to the left. So they're in a cul-de-sac, and, and Pharaoh has changed his mind. You know the story. He sends his armies after the people of Israel, and a men, women, children and in, in the middle of this cul-de-sac, and so ocean before them and uh, mountains beside them and an army bearing down behind them, and they're in a completely tight state, um, a high-pressure cooker situation. And, um, and it's interesting, the text says that when the people lifted up their eyes and saw, with their physical eyes, the Egyptian armies, that they became afraid and started to cry out. Not crying out in faith, but crying out um, in complaint. And they went to Moses and said, why have you done this? Why have you brought us here? That's a way of saying you're such a bad leader leading us into a cul-de-sac. We should have stayed in Egypt and lived as slaves rather than come out here. Frightened, anxious. Worried, complaining, grumbling, all because they see the Egyptian armies and are afraid, living by sight. But it's interesting what Moses says in that very scenario. As he tells the people of Israel, he says, Don't, do not fear, see the salvation of the Lord. He's asking them to see something they can't yet see. He's in essence saying, don't be afraid. Um, because something's going to happen, and you need to trust that. You need to see that it's going to happen. That is faith. The Lord's not going to lead you somewhere to, to, to have you massacred by, a, by, by an army of, of, of Egyptian soldiers. Look with a different kind of look. Look with the heart of faith, not with what you see in your eyes. And, of course, you know the story. He sticks his staff into the water, and God carves this dry path right through that big body of water, and they walk through on dry land. They needed to trust, and they wouldn't have been afraid. That phrase, we walk by our faith. We walk believing and trusting in what we cannot see. And only then can we live a life that is free from this kind of paranoid um, anxiety and worry about everything because we trust that the Lord is, is, is there. And that was the key to Paul, too. That context in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 7, when he says, we walk by faith, not by sight, that is in the, in the midst of him talking about the pressures of his own life and ministry. I am pressed, but I'm not crushed. I'm persecuted, but I'm not abandoned. And I don't lose heart. You know why he doesn't lose heart in the middle of all this pressure? Because he, he lives his life trusting in what he can't see, who he knows the Lord to be, rather than trusting in what he sees or the conclusions based upon what he sees. Now, how does that connect, of course, to, to this story of the installation or the anointing of, of Israel's first king? Well, um, really the historical context into which we find uh, the story in 9 and 10 is a messy one. That is, the people of Israel have sinned against the Lord. They have, in essence, said, we want a king like all the other nations. And we're told in chapter 8 that, um, that, in effect, what they're doing is they're rejecting the Lord. They're saying, we want to substitute someone we can see, someone we can manage, someone who will represent us in a way that's visible. We're tired of depending upon a God we can't see. So, in effect, they have rejected the Lord. So, it's a, it's a messy situation and yet these two chapters in the middle of this messy historical situation of sin on the part of God's people, we find two truths emerge or two perspectives that emerge on how God works even when things seem to be going in the wrong direction. And these are two truths that I want you to think of as lenses to glasses to see life, to see reality. Um, they're lenses of faith, not the lenses of physical eyes or physical sight. Um, and my hope is by the time 
uh, we conclude this, that you'll say, do I really see the world this way? Do I see my circumstances this way? Do I see um, the good as well as the negative things that happen this way? Because this is what it means to live and walk by, by faith. Well, as I said, the story is about the anointing of, of the first king of Israel, uh, King Saul. We are introduced to him in chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, as somebody who is of, of stellar beauty. Um, he is not only the son of a wealthy man by the name of Kish, so he's wealthy, but we're told that he's more handsome than anybody else in all of Israel, and he's taller than anybody else in all of Israel. So he's supremely good-looking and supremely tall. That makes him a poster child for a king like all the other nations, perhaps a king better-looking than all the other nations. But one morning, he wakes up, and here I'm just going to summarize uh, the young man, maybe in his late, late teens, early 20s, um, named Saul, he wakes up to a crisis. And the crisis is that his dad has lost some donkeys. Like I said, his dad is a fairly wealthy man. goes out to the stall or corral, and the donkeys are missing. So Saul, as a young man, gets the probably unpleasant chore of having to chase down his father's donkeys. So the text goes on to tell us, beginning in verse 3 and following, that he makes his way through the Judean hills, like to city to city. He's looking for these these wayward donkeys. Now, now, if I was him, I'd be like, Dad, seriously, can't you send the servants out? I want to look for a bunch of, you know, stubborn donkeys wandering around. But that's what he's doing. He is off going through the hill country looking for donkeys. And verse 20 of chapter 9 tells us that they've been gone for three days. They looked for three days. A long time. <laughs> Good riddance to donkeys. Now, here we have to ask a question. Is this crisis... For us, it might not be a crisis. We don't own donkeys, at least most of us don't. But is this crisis of these wayward donkeys an accident, an anomaly? And I don't believe that the chapter would have us say yes, that there's a purpose behind these lost donkeys, and there is a purpose behind Paul Saul's pursuit of these donkeys. As I said, they make their way through the hill country, and they end up near a city. And this, by the way, is the perspective that I want you to grasp that I'm going to fill out here in a second. And that one of the truths that comes to the light, comes to light, comes to the surface in this chapter, is the truth of um, seeing God's merciful providence or providential mercy. I'll tell you what that is in a second. But that's a lens by which we as people who are informed by the Bible are to see reality, to see um, what seems like coincidence or seems like just random events in, in the universe, that they have an ordered purpose, a more merciful purpose. In this case, the, the chapter starts off with the crisis of the donkeys missing, and we ask the question, well, is it by accident? No, it's not by accident. As I said, on their search, they end up near a particular town, and just about the time that, that Saul, this young man's willing to give up, he says, you know what? We've been gone for three days, my paraphrase. And uh, pretty soon my dad's going to be more worried about us than the donkeys, so we probably better head back. And a servant who happens to be with him says, you know what? Behold, verse 6, there is a man of God in this city, and he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. The uh, italicized word there is key. They just happen to be at the city where a prophet, a man of God, it's Samuel, happens to be living. says, you know what? The city we're at, there's a prophet here. Um, all that he says comes true, so let's go ask him about the donkeys. <laughs> this whole chapter revolves around donkeys, seemingly from the outward appearance. 
by accident, a fluke, that they happen to be just at the city that, that uh, the prophet Samuel lives? I don't think so. Saul, in response to this, this, this suggestion, hey, let's go to see a prophet, he says, you know what, we really can't do that because we don't have a gift. We can't go to a prophet and ask for services and not bring him something. We don't have any food. We don't have any money. That's his, his hesitation and reluctance, to which the servant, and this isn't clear in the, in the English text, but it's, it's somewhat clear more in the Hebrew text, is the, this, the, the steward or the ser, uh, servant finds money, um, Surprisingly so. You know, like when you reach into your pocket and you don't think you have money, and you're like, wow, I just found a $20 bill. That's pretty cool. Well, that's the sense of, of, of the text is that he pulls out and says, I, I do have money. So then Saul says, well, then it's a good idea. Let's go up and see the prophet. So, again, let me just recap for those of you who have drifted already. Wandering donkeys by accident. Wait a second. Um, a search through many cities. Uh, ending at the city or near the city where, the, where Samuel lives. By accident, the chance of just having enough money to go and secure his services so that he could tell them where the donkeys are. But it gets better. They make their way up to the city, and they find this group of women that are coming out to uh, draw water. And they ask these women, is the prophet here? And this is what they respond. He, that is the prophet Samuel, has come just now to the city. Just now. Just came home. If they had come half hour earlier, they would have missed him. The appointment would have been missed between Samuel the prophet and this soon-to-be king by the name of Saul. He has just now come into the city. The timing is perfect. Lost donkeys, ended at the right city. They have money. They go to the city just at the time that the, that the prophet arrives. Well, the story continues, and, and, and Saul and Samuel, the prophet, do meet. And when they meet, here's another summary, it seems as if Saul already, excuse me, the prophet already knows who he is because he looks at him and says, your donkeys are okay. All right? In addition to that, the prophet asks or invites Samuel to a special dinner where he is the central guest and where there's a special portion of food set aside just for him. That's picked up in verses 22 and following, where we read, Then Samuel took Saul, that's the would-be king, and his young man, and brought them into the hall and gave them a place at the head of those who had been invited, um, who were about 30 persons. In verse 23, And Samuel said to the cook, Bring the portion I gave you, of which I said, put it aside. Now, you kind of get a sense of what's happening here. It's as if it's all prearranged. And from Saul's perspective, he gets up and gets an unpleasant chore. I got to go look for donkeys. Spends three days looking for donkeys, can't find the donkeys. All he can see is this donkey thing. Uh, he gets to the city, asks, or the prophet says the donkeys are okay, but he invites him to this meal where it seems like he is the, the guest of honor, and then he, he's given a special portion as if it's all ordered, as if everything is right on time. And it is. It's perfectly arranged. All the details of missing donkeys and the search and where they ended with the city at just the right time, having the money and then being invited to this, to this meal where he's the guest of honor, where a special portion has been laid aside just for him. It's all perfectly arranged. It just seems like ordinary details to the human eye, but not to the eye that's trained to see providence, God's merciful providence. 
Because here, at this place and at this meeting, Samuel would anoint him as king. That, my friends, by the way, is providence. We're, we're familiar with the miraculous where God does the extraordinary in history where everybody goes, ooh, ah, and someone walked on water. But we often don't take into consideration the vast majority of God's constant working, which is through the ordinary details of life, like things missing, like looking for lost stuff, Rand, what seems like random meetings with people. This is a well-ordered chaos in which God is going to do something merciful. Now, um, at this point, I, I have to stop and, and, um, and show you kind of in between and really at the center of this chapter, the place where, you know, so far we've seen kind of from a human perspective what happened, all the lost donkeys and so forth. But, but verses 15, if you back up to verse 15, um, it's like the veil is pulled back and you get to see the, the hand of God which has been invisibly moving through the circumstances of Saul's life. You get it? It's, it's letting us know this is God at work. It's key. Verse 15 it says, Now the day before Saul came, the day before, 24 hours, back up time before the meeting, the Lord had revealed to Samuel the prophet, Tomorrow, about this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. And I'm going to skip that next verse. I want you to notice two things in this behind-the-scenes look at God's work in the ordinary details of lost donkeys and happenstance meetings. One is that God is behind all of it. It says right there that the Lord had revealed him tomorrow about this time I will send to you. So we see God's hand behind the lost donkeys and the, and the search ending at the city coming up to Samuel. He knows ahead of time. That's why he has a meal all prepared for him with a special portion put to the side. He's expecting him because God's hand is doing all of these things. That's one thing to notice. God is, is behind all of this. The second thing to notice is that God's merciful purpose is guiding it. The merciful, merciful purposes is what Saul is being called to do. And that is, he shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. Now just pause for a moment. God is raising up a deliverer for his people to save them because he has heard their cry. This is, God is moving in mercy by giving them Saul. God's providential hand, moving with mercy for deliverance. Now, at this point, this is where, where I have to stop, and, and this is the part that grips my soul and really feeds my faith. Um, what had Israel just done in the history of it? They've just said, we want a king like the other nations. They've just, in essence, like rejected the Lord. Now, our twisted sense of adjustment, or at least mine, when I first read it, it's like, Lord, why don't you just take out a big magnifying glass and blast them all to hell, you know? They rejected you. They want a human king, not the divine king. So, so why don't you just, I mean, they, they rejected you. Why don't you reject them? And then the thought occurs to me, and it should occur to you, you know what? They're a lot like me. And, and if God's going to blast Israel to hell because they've messed up, then he should blast me to hell too. And if there's no hope for Israel, there's no hope for me. 
Because really, the, the, the biography of the people of Israel is really our biography. How many of us at different times haven't substituted something else in place of the Lord? A woman, a man, a relationship, being married, having a kid, uh, whatever, money. We find out, oh, Lord, I've been, I've been worshiping that. that. That's become the center of my universe, and thank you for bringing it to my attention. Forgive me. We've done the same thing. And yet what's, 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 what's amazing is that God is still working. Like in the midst of the rejection, he's raising up a deliverer and showing mercy. And that's been the case all throughout the story of Samuel. Even when there's darkness, God's mercy is working its way through. Letting us know that he never gives up on his people, never. Even in the moments where he's judging, he's still working out his merciful purposes for his people. And that is, that is gospel to you and to I. Uh, to know that... that, that we, like Israel, often stumble and fall, and we find ourselves, you know, saying the wrong things and, and at times twisting the truth, only to realize it later and go, what have I done? And, and, if, and if we're going to live by works, well, then we're going we're gonna to die in a pile of guilt or we're going to try and better ourselves and find ourselves defeated on the other side because we failed yet again. But then to pull back and realize, you know what, God's mercy doesn't give up on me. And didn't give up on the people of Israel either. Even in the middle of their rejection, God is raising up a deliverer, providentially working out his merciful purposes um, for his people Israel through the details of lost donkeys and so forth. Now that is, as I said, a, a faith perspective that the Bible tells us to have as believers. Um, and we might say, you might say, well, that's providence in this chapter. Of course, it's Saul. He's getting a king. But then you go forward a thousand years and you listen to the Apostle Paul who says, you know what? Um, all things, everything works together for the good of the one who loves God and is called by God. That includes your stumbling and your mistakes. And that God's mercy is involved in every detail of your life. There's no detail, even in the failures that God does not have a merciful purpose for. That doesn't mean that there aren't negative consequences to sin. There are, and that's going to that's be shown in the story of Saul as well. What you sow, you will also reap. But that doesn't mean that God isn't merciful in all things, in all details, in the circumstances of your life. And that's the faith perspective most of us forget. You hear a message like this on a Sunday morning, like, yeah, man, I want to do that. And you're going to go home and... And uh, you're going to get talked back to by your teenage daughter or son, and you're going to blow it. You're going to get angry and lose your temper because, you know what, you forgot that, you know what, God's in this. There are circumstances, all circumstances, every sliver, every moment of my life he's involved with. That's, that's providence. That there are no, are no accidents. Um. Humans, without a, without, a, without a doubt, make mistakes in history for which there are consequences. But the faith side of things understands that God doesn't make any mistakes in history. Amen. Not for you and not for me. You know, I look back at some of my blunders in life and realize that while there were some negative consequences that came out of them, God also, in an amazing way, was so merciful to teach me things I needed to know. That's his merciful purposes. And if you can see your circumstances that way that you live in, 
recognize that, you know, there's nothing that's by accident, and I'm going to embrace the fact that God's goodness and mercy is working through the details. Even though I can't see it, you know, sometimes like Saul, you're just seeing lost donkeys. All I see is lost donkeys. seems like everything's random. And yet the story would have us believe that it's not random. It's got purpose. If he has you chasing donkeys, and I'm using that metaphorically, um, then trust him with it. It's going somewhere. It's going somewhere, even if you don't have the physical eyes to see it. Well, that's one part of the truth. The second part is much shorter, and it has to do with, and it's similar. The one is the perspective of God's merciful providence, providential mercy. It's always involved in the lives of those who trust him. Um, by the way, isn't it interesting that, that Israel rejects her true king, God, for sake of a human king? And yet God still works mercy into it. And you fast forward another thousand years and Israel again rejects her true king. And in the darkest providence of human history, when friends are betraying friends and friends are, are, are denying friends and um, judicial institutions are, 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 are condemning innocent men and innocent man, so much so that they crucify him on a tree, that that dark providence, when it seemed like all was lost, was the very dark providence that won our salvation and a new creation. The darkest moments of your life are some of the brightest moments of God's grace. And that's, that's, you just got to trust that that is indeed the case. But that's, that's a faith perspective. Do I walk by faith or walk by sight? You walk by sight, all you're going to see is evil. Walk by faith, and you recognize God bends evil to his will, and his will is a good one for his people. The second one has to do with provision. That also comes to light. Okay, so they eat. Let's carry on the story. They eat, and it says that then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his, that is Saul's head, and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over the people of Israel, and you shall reign uh, over the people of the Lord, and you shall save them from the, from the hand of the surrounding enemies. That's the mercy side. This is his job. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his, his heritage. And he goes on to give them three different signs. Now, it's easy to read over this and not think about the enormity of this task. I mean, this is God's prized possession. These are his special people. He completely destroyed and dismantled the, the Egyptian army for this people. That means they're pretty important to the Lord. They are the apple of his eye. And here the prophet comes and says, you're the first king. And this is what you're supposed to do. You're going to deliver these people. And mind you, Saul is a young man. That is a huge burden to, to lay on a young man. The responsibility of kingship over the Lord's people, Yahweh's people. To help him um, feel a sense of the Lord's grace and strength that he's behind him, he gives him three signs. Three signs. He says, uh, the, this is the prophet speaking to Saul, the, the newly anointed king. Listen, when you return home, when you get to the tomb of Rachel, you're going to meet two men, and they're going to tell you your donkeys have returned home. So they're going to give you a good message. Then you're going to go on further on your journey, and when you pass by the Oak of Tabor, um, you are going to have, meet three men, and they're going to have wine and some animals going up to worship and some bread. One of them is going to give you two loaves, either as a symbolic sign of his future kingship uh, or possibly, and maybe it's both, um, to give them food on the way. And then the third one is that um, he is going to be nearing a, a place of worship, and there's a band of, of prophets are going to come down. And these 
prophets are going to be singing and prophesying as they go. And you know what? The Spirit of God is going to rush upon you. You're going to start prophesying and singing as, as you go with them. Those are the three signs that he gives them. And, um, all, by the way, intended to confirm and assure this truth that God is with you. He's giving them an assurances and confirmation and enablement that the job God has called him to, he will be with him on. So sure enough, Saul heads home. And it would have been a little bit spooky. You know, he just left. You're thinking, man, I just became king of Israel. He said, I'm going to meet people. You make it, you know, closing in on, on Rachel's tomb and seeing these two guys. And you're thinking, uh, what are they going to tell me? I know, hey, guess what? Your donkeys have returned home. You know, I kind of thought maybe that was the case. Then you go by the Oak of Tabor and you meet three guys coming along. And one guy hands you two loaves of bread. And you're like, it's just like it said. The third one would have been the most scariest, uh, especially for Saul, as I've come to understand him. He's not a very extroverted person, somewhat shy, is uh, he sees the band of prophets coming. Remember, and the Lord said, my spirit's going to rush upon you, and you're going to be turned into another man. Um, different experience. Well, anyway, it happens, and sure enough, the spirit rushes upon him, and he starts prophesying and doing all the stuff that the prophets are doing completely outside of his character, so much so that the people who knew him looked at him and said, is that Saul? And it was such an anomaly that they created a proverb out of it um, for, the, for the people of Israel. Much like we would say, well, miracles do happen. Um, the people started saying, well, Saul did become a prophet. Same kind of thing. All of these signs intended to show him, to confirm to him, and to sure, assure him, and to enable him with the fact that I am the Lord behind you. I'm not going to send you out there alone. You're not, you're not taking on this enormous responsibility all by yourself. I'm with you. My grace is with you. I will provide for you all along the way, on and off the battlefield. This is assurance of grace. This is, this is God's um, provision, his gracious provision for this young king. And you know, that's the, the, the principle is true for us as well. That what God calls us to do and the, the directions he has given to us in life, he wants to assure us that though he, we can't see him, that we live in the reality that if um, God is for us, then, then there's nothing that can stand against us, which is itself a faith thing. But to, to live in the reality, he will provide for you all along the way what you need at the moment, just at the moment you need it. And here's the tragic thing. Saul is going to struggle, as we will find, to believe this very truth. He's going to struggle to believe that the Lord is really with him. On almost every occasion when he faces the Philistine armies, we find him afraid because he's seeing things with these eyes and not believing all the signs of grace that have been given to him by the Lord that I am with you. That it's this very truth that God is with you. I am with you. That he fails to believe, and because of that, he lives in fear and oftentimes defeat. And you know that, that that's, that's, that's true of us as well. I'm, Jesus said it really well to the, to, the, to the disciples when they were afraid. He says, oh, you of, of little faith, if you just knew who was with you, you'd have no reason to be afraid. That where fear rises and anxiety rises and, 
and a sense of uh, paranoid alarm rises over anything, then we're ceasing to live by faith in the God who is with us and we're beginning to live by what we see. We're, we're, we're failing to trust that the Lord is with us. And we're beginning to see and come to conclusions about life based upon what we see. The key to a, a, a confident, joyful, and secure life, a life that is going to be epitomized by King David, the next king, is a simple trust that God's grace is sufficient for us. And that's true for every person who is a follower of Christ, a follower of God. You know, I was reminded of this just a couple of months ago. Every once in a while, an event happens in my family that is so clearly instructional that for me that I have to write it down. This one was a lesson that God taught me through my youngest son, and it's this very truth. It's about this very truth. I can't really tell stories about my older ones anymore, uh, but I still can't get away with telling them about my youngest because he's in Sunday school right now. So one night, about two, two and a half months ago, and it was about 10 o'clock at night, he should have been in bed and he should have been asleep. And he, uh, he says, Daddy, come here. And I was in, in bed and I was reading a book. And I was feeling lazy. He said, Daddy, come here. And I'm thinking, Isaac, you need to go to bed. He goes, no, Daddy, come here. And I would just wait. I'm like, maybe he won't hear me. Or maybe I'll act like I don't hear him. Let it go. He's like, Daddy, a little bit louder. Come here. I'm like, this is what most parents, when they're feeling a little lazy, say, no, you come here. I'm not going to come there. You come here. And he wouldn't. He said, no, Daddy, come here. I left Elfie's downstairs. Now, most of you don't know who Elfie's is, but it's the pet name that he gave this little stuffed elephant, Elfie's elephant, um, that's loved. It's fur-worn. It has a a crooked trunk because he's been dragged around so long. And I'm reasonably sure that if my son was given a choice between who lives and who dies between me and Alfie's, I would lose. It's his best friend. He can't sleep with it. He can't go to anybody's house to spend the night without it. So if he ever comes to spend the night at your house, you're going to have to, you'll see this little guy named Alfie's. Well, anyway, he's, he yells at me again from the other room, Daddy, Alfie's is downstairs. And I said, well, go down and get him. And uh, he says, no, it's dark downstairs. It's scary downstairs. And so, again, feeling a little bit lazy, I said, well, turn on the light. And so he said, okay. So he went and turned on the light. Of course, the light lights the upper hall, but not down into the downstairs where it's still dark. So anyway, I hear him start to walk down the the stairs. And um, about halfway down the stairs, I can just hear it. I hear this, right back up the (laughs) stairs. Comes running into the room, and he says, Dad, the front door's open. And at this point, I'm scared. I'm thinking to myself, the front door's open. It's 10 o'clock at night. Who walked into my house? My first instinct was, do I grab a gun? Um, I hope I don't offend anybody by you hearing the pastor has a gun. But I thought, you know, that would really freak out my son to know that I'm afraid. So, like a big man, I got up and I started walking down the stairs. The interesting thing in this moment, here's the teaching moment for me, is this halfway down the stairs, little guy goes like running by me, goes down into the dark, grabs his elfies, run back upstairs before I get down to the door where I realize it's not open, it's just unlocked. Now, interesting. He was just looking at the fear that he was experiencing about the dark and about the open door, and he just couldn't do it. 
And a lot of Christians live right there. I can't do this. I can't do this. But as soon as I was there, halfway down the stairs, he was down in the dark, right back up, no fear at all. Only difference is I was present. It's the only difference. And when uh, Christian faith gets its heart around the fact that God is never, never is more than an inch away. And you know what? God is never lazy. He doesn't read a book sitting in a bed. He never sleeps. He never slumbers. He's the kind of God who, who is always there. He doesn't send you down into the darkness to deal with life by yourself. He's like, no, I'm, no, I'm right here. And to really believe that. But, I, you know, here's the, here's the deal. That's walking by faith and not by sight. It's the substance of how we're supposed to live each moment, to know that he's here and he's with me and he loves me. He'll protect me. He'll give me exactly what I'll need. He is my gracious provider. Not only does he orchestrate the details of my life for my own good and his glory, but he also promises to be with me, present and relational and loving me all the way through. And the heart that gets that, as well as the head, head and heart that gets that, walks with a sense of security and confidence and joy. So I, so I, I, I ask you the, the question, so what are you afraid of? What is it you're anxious about? And what is it you're worried about? What is it that you, you wake up at night going, man, I just I can't get this out of my mind, this, this thing that's, that I'm going through at work or at home or whatever. And are you addressing that issue, not with fear, but are you addressing it with the faith, faith in truths like this, that it's not by accident that this is happening. And I trust that God is with me in it as I face it. That's how you deal with issues by faith. We are supposed to deal with issues in life, but we just don't deal with them by coming to conclusions based upon what we see. That's living by sight. But to deal with the situations and the issues that face us, marriage and parenting and all the rest, with, okay, do I trust that God is at work in the details of this and it's going in the right direction and do I trust he's with me and he's going to provide whatever's necessary on this journey? That's how you deal with issues by faith and not by sight. And I believe these two truths of, of faith come to light in this, this passage. And I'm just hoping that all of us in here as family will be able to wear these lenses more, more consistently. There'll be a lot less fear and a lot more faith and a lot more joy and a lot more confidence and security in God's people and a lot more praise because we know who's going to win in the end. And we know who's already winning because everything is working to our good and his glory. So let me just ask you to respond. If, if you're a person who's like, yep, I'm worried about this stuff and I know I need to deal with it in faith, will you just simply in this next 20 seconds just ask, Lord, will you help me to see these issues and deal with these issues by faith and not by sight? And give me strength and joy that comes from that kind of faith. Will you pray that? Um, for your own heart, and, and if you're not worried, you can pray for somebody who is and who is fearful. And then I'll close the time in prayer.
Father, we are grateful for your loving kindness and your patience. We're thankful that you declared, before you ever talked about the judgment of sin, we're glad that you declared that you are a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness to thousands of generations. We are thankful that even in the midst of darkness, you work out mercy and grace. We are grateful that you are not just the God of the big picture, but you're a God of the details too. And you have promised, you have promised to work the details out for good to those who are willing to fall at your feet and say, Lord, I trust you with it. As weak as my faith is, I trust you with it. And to live in the freedom of, the, of your love that will never let us go. I pray that you grant us the perspective each day um, that we walk, each day that we live, whether in family or in work, um, to know that you're involved in the details of life and you never, ever leave us or forsake us. Help us to live by faith. Not by sight. In Jesus' name. Amen.